Father, we pray now as a community that you would speak to us. God, I pray that uh, you would open our minds and open our hearts and our lives to receive what you have for us to receive. God, our lives belong to you. God, everything belongs to you. God, so we give you everything right now, and we ask for you to guide us and to lead us. We desperately need you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, let me just start by saying it is great to be back with you all. As some of you, it's familiar faces. It's been years, so as I look out into the audience, it's incredible. I've been in Phoenix 12 years. It's wild, so... Um, it's great to see some familiar faces. If you don't know me at all, I introduce my position, but I have three kiddos that live in downtown Phoenix. I have twin two-year-olds and a seven-year-old daughter, so we say busy, crazy, beautiful in the Prather home, as, you, as many of you know. So that is life for us. What I like to do, before I actually get to the text, I just want to remind us where we're at. So I'm going to trace through a little bit of the biblical story, and then we will come to our text, all right? So Uh, If you're a note taker, the main point that I think we need to take away today is Jesus restores and recommissions, right? So Jesus restores us and he recommissions us. And this is nothing new for God. This is what he's always done. At the beginning, he didn't have to restore. He just had to form. So if we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God forms man out of nothing, breathes into him life calls him to himself, creates him in his image. He is beautiful, just the way God intended him to be. And then with that, as he forms him, he commissions him and says, I have work for you to do. Fill the earth, multiply. I want you to take care of this garden. But uh, man, just like today, however long ago, decided that he didn't want to do that. And he wanted to be God, not be like God. And he wanted to do his own work and not do the work that God called him to do. So the whole world fell apart in that moment. Literally, the whole world fell apart. So it's not just our hearts that are decaying, but this world is decaying, and now demonic forces are unleashed in this world trying to lie to you and tell you who you are and what your identity is, and it certainly is not rooted in the gospel. And that's why we're in such a mental health crisis right now, is because Satan is a liar. I was in a Pentecostal worship service one time, and a woman said, Satan is a liar. And so was his mother-in-law. <laughs> so was his mother-in-law. Satan is a liar, I'll tell you what. So, all of that, the world falls apart, but does God leave us? No, he does not. That is the good news. That is the good news, is that God does the same thing over and over. He restores us, he comes to us, he restores us, and then he recommissions us. And he does this with Israel. We go from Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, there arose a Pharaoh that forgot Joseph. God's people are enslaved. And then what does God do? He comes to them. And that's where we're getting to our passage. What does he do? He comes to Peter. Peter doesn't come to him, does he? No, he comes to them. And that's what we see in Exodus. So God comes to his people. He delivers them out of bondage. And this is what he says. This is what he says in Exodus 19, three through six. Then Moses went up to God And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, what I did to those that were against you, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I came to you, God says. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... 
then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom. This is the commissioning. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. We see it again in the book of Jonah. God has a commission for Jonah. Here's what I want you to do. Jonah, I've called you to myself. I've restored you. You are with me, and I am commissioning you with a task. Jonah says, no, thank you. Jonah goes the opposite direction, and Jonah actually, I think it's important we think about mental health. Jonah actually tries to kill himself. He's on the boat. He knows this is because of him, and he wants to die. And I think it's fascinating. The book actually ends that way too, with Jonah wanting to die. But God says, no, I have work for you to do. I'm coming after you. <laughs> he sends a fish, swallows up Jonah. Three days later, after Jonah finally comes to his senses, spits him up on shore. What does God say? The same exact thing he told him before. I want you to go to Nineveh. I have work for you to do. I did not just restore you for you to be with me. Although, yes, yes, <laughs> I want to be with you. I actually have work for you to do, and I am sending you to Nineveh. But what we see continuously, we see this pattern in the Old Testament with God's people. We see it in the New Testament. But what we're longing for in this intertestamental period, and that is this section between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we're longing for is for someone to actually complete the task. Is there anyone that can actually fully be obedient to God, be fully restored with God with no cracks, no brokenness? I look in my own heart, I look in my own mind, there's cracks and there's brokenness still, even though I'm born again. Is there anybody with no cracks and no brokenness? Is there anybody that will actually obey the commission that God has given them? And that's what we find in the person of Jesus. <laughs> we see this God-man coming together that actually fully embodies the divine life, does what God wants him to do, obeys God to the end. But Jesus doesn't want to do it all himself, although he could, Right? All authority on heaven in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. He could do it all himself, but he actually has a people he wants to do it through. And that's why he comes to Peter, because Peter's not done. <laughs> God has work for Peter to do. So pick up with me. Open up your app or open up your Bible. I'm going to pretty much go verse by verse. Read through this whole text again, stopping along the way and, and talking through some things. So just starting in verse 1 when he says... After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Pause there. I think it is so hard for us to really understand the resurrection, and this is why John is harping on it so much. We have put people, uh, we have held people's hands as they passed away, you know, We've talked to people while they've taken their last breath. We've seen them in the casket. I have a vivid memory of my grandfather in the casket when I was a kid, and it was this surreal moment, right? All of us have seen and endured the hardships of death. And John is saying, this guy was dead, but now he's not. <laughs> he is risen, and we've seen him three times. We're not delusional. This isn't like a myth. This isn't a, this is, I'm not crazy. And that's why he's trying to make it very, because we, we, we think about this and we think, what would that actually be like to actually see somebody resurrected from the dead? John was there. He saw him die. And John is trying to make it very clear that this guy is risen three times. It's incredible when you think about it and why it's really important for us. And this is just a piece of discipleship. 
is when we think about following Jesus, I think sometimes we don't remember that we are actually following a person that has been resurrected, you know? Like, Jesus is alive. Do you believe that? Like, bodily alive. Now, he comes to live within us, but we actually follow a man and walk in his footsteps. And this is what John is wanting to tell us, because as we close down chapter 21, it's an invitation, and that's what I'm going to give to you all. We've seen, we've heard, we've looked at the life of Jesus, and now there's an invitation to follow him in the divine life. As he has lived, John is inviting each one of us to pick up his life and embody live like Jesus lived. Carry on with me if you would. He goes through the list of disciples, and then we come to verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So the disciples have seen Jesus, but still they don't fully understand and comprehend what's happening. So they go back to their old life. And fishing at night was common. You could catch fish at night, sell it fresh in the market the next day. So that was not uncommon, but they don't catch anything. So they're discouraged. They're very discouraged. And this is where you get, if you're a note taker, this is the part of being restored to Jesus. The next verses as I read down, going through this, is this is this restoration moment that is beautiful, especially, it's all the disciples, but especially for Peter and Jesus. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now this is when Jesus comes to us. You have to think. They're already disillusioned. They've lost hope, even though they've seen Jesus. If you saw somebody resurrected from the dead that's like appearing in the room, you know, when the door's shut, you're like, I don't really know what's happening. This is So they just go back to their life. They're still semi-hopeless, not fully understanding the power of the resurrection and certainly not understanding their call in light of the resurrection. So there's a hopelessness here. There's a despair. And they went fishing. This is what they spent their whole life doing. And they come back with nothing. And this is when Jesus comes to us. If you're in despair, if you're hopeless, <laughs> take heart. This is when Jesus likes to show up and say, you can have hope in me. Now is the time to cry out to Jesus every day is the time to cry out to Jesus. But now is the time to cry out to Jesus and thinking about the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we already know that's John. That's the John who's writing this book. It says, it is the Lord. Now, how do they know it's the Lord? And this is important for us as well. Based upon the quantity of fish. Why does that matter? Because I think we are in a culture that bases faith so often upon what you think and what you feel. Are you thinking the right things? Now, do I think we need to have a renewed mind? Can God do that? Absolutely. Do you feel good? Is God actually putting like warmness, goodness into your heart? Can God do that? Absolutely. 
But here, the disciples aren't overwhelmed by a feeling. They're not overwhelmed by thought. They're overwhelmed by the authority that Jesus has over the whole creation. And that is what John has been doing and building through this gospel. He is showing that all authority belongs to Jesus. Authority over demonic powers belongs to Jesus. Authority over sin (laughs) belongs to Jesus. Authority over life and death belongs solely to Jesus. It is his possession. It belongs to him, and he can give it out when he wants and to whom he wants, and that's why they know it is the Lord. They don't say it's Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. They say it's the Lord that's on the shore because of the authority that he has. Let me read you a passage. So if you remember John the Baptist, who paved the way for Jesus, he comes to a point because he's about to be beheaded. He's about to die. I think if any of us are in prison, we're about to die. We just want to make sure. You know, so John's like, I just, hey, I just want to make sure you're the guy, right? Like, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've waited for. You're the one that was supposed to come. This, you're, you're it. And this is, what, this is what John says. John's wondering. And this is Jesus' response. Meanwhile, this is Matthew chapter 11. Meanwhile, John heard in prison about the works of Christ, and he sent his disciples, this is John the Baptist, sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who has come, or should we look for someone else? And this is Jesus' reply. Do you feel it? Do you think it? No, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus says. No, this is what Jesus says. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And good news is preached to the poor. An encounter with Jesus means we see him, we hear him in our lives. He has authority over everything, over our homes, over our jobs. And if we have not seen that authority take place, are we following Jesus? We need to look and see. And I want Jesus, hey, hey, (laughs) let me be real with you. I could use more of the feel good. I want it more than anybody. I'll tell you, I want to think. I want to have a better mind. I want to have a better heart. I want to wake up every day and just have the joy of the Lord, right? But we're not basing our faith on that. That's not the rock. And that wasn't the disciples. They didn't say it's the Lord because of feeling or thing. They said it's the Lord because of his authority over creation. Pick up with me, if you would, verse uh, Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped from the work, and he threw himself into the sea. Pause there just a moment. I love this because, uh, as we're going to read in just a second, they're not that far from shore. They're 100 yards, right? They're not that far off. Peter had not healed yet from denying Jesus, right? And he had to be healed. He had to be healed from this. And Peter didn't know much. You know, Peter's brash. We see in the Gospels, he makes poor decisions. You know, he says things. Hey, I'll follow you anywhere, man. Where are we going? I'm with you. Let's go. And Jesus is like, you're actually going to deny me three times. You know, he's like, never, man. I'm with you to the end. Let's go. You know, and then he denies him three times, right? So Peter's just like, but he, this is all he knows, and this is where I just want us to stop for a minute and remember, if we don't know anything, we know we got to get to Jesus. 
If you wake up one morning and you don't know, you're completely lost. You're completely desperate. You have nothing else in the world to hold on to. You don't know what to do, all right? You're at such a low, the one thing you got to remember is get to Jesus. Swim to him as quickly as possible. And I think this is me taking a little liberty with the text, but even the putting on of the outer garment, you think he's about to jump in the water. It's a nice day. Why is he putting on the outer garment? Do you ever feel so ashamed sometimes or you're carrying such shame that like you just, it's like a cover, you know? He's about to get into Jesus and I feel like he's just got to cover him because he feels so ashamed for what he's done. So he covers himself up. He jumps into the water, but still, even with that, Peter knows that he has to get to Jesus. And I want you to read this as well, or think on this as well. Pick up back with me. Um, He put on his outer garment for he stripped from the work. He threw himself into the sea. This is verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. When they got it on the land, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Pause there. This word, charcoal fire, is only used twice. Do you know where it's used? Where John uses it? It's used once when Peter denies Jesus three times. Where is Peter at? Peter is, a, is around a charcoal fire. Right? This is after he said, I'm going to go with you anywhere, man. Never, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. He's standing around a charcoal fire. And they say, you've been with Jesus. You're one of them. No, it's not me. Three times around the charcoal fire. Now, what do you think? I know some of you have probably dealt with trauma before, and you have these triggers. So what do you think Peter thought when he came to shore and saw the charcoal fire? What was he immediately reminded of? Immediately. He sees it, and he's triggered, right? And what is Jesus doing? What's Jesus doing? He's rewriting Peter's story. Because what he wants Peter to remember for the rest of his life is not the shame from denying him three times. It's not the pain as Peter left that fire when he denied Jesus three times. It says he wept bitterly. The shame he felt. His best friend, the Lord of the universe, and he cast him aside like he was nothing in front of a charcoal fire. And for the rest of his life, he would have seen it and he would have remembered his denial of Jesus and it would have been like the cloak covering him with shame. And Jesus says, I want you to come and sit at this charcoal fire because I have something I have to do. And until you heal from the past, Peter, until you heal from the past, we can't move on into the future. And part of that is rewriting this moment. So for the rest of your life, you're going to see a charcoal fire and you're going to think of this meal with me. And you're going to see me looking at you, not not pressing shame on you, not pressing anything on you but love and acceptance and restoring you to myself. I love that. I love it. So... I want to talk about uh, verse 11 just for a minute because I think it's important as well. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, about 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, for most of us, this is not that significant because we're not fishermen. John mentions 153 fish, and I say, okay, 
What does that mean? I don't, I don't know what that means. The net's not torn. And we're like, okay, the net's not torn, 153. What does that mean? For him, this is their whole lives. It's not just Jesus having authority over a piece of creation. Could you imagine? Peter was raised, discipled in a fishing boat. He took on this career. So did John. Their lives revolved around fish to provide for their family, to provide for themselves. And what is John trying to communicate is that Jesus not only provides for us, he provided 153 fish, where a fisherman reading this at the time was probably like, what? 153 fish? You know, or we're reading it like, I don't know what that means. You know, John's very meticulous with what he's saying. He provided 153 fish. Not only does he provide, John is saying, God protects what he gives you. The net wasn't torn. No, God provides and he protects. And what comes next is what I'll call the reconciliation meal. So read along with me, verse, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, and this was the, third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus uh, rises from the dead. He already was king of the universe. And now he claims full authority over everything. Satan, sin, and death. Death has lost its sting. He is declared. He has established authority he is now, like, when he resurrects, like Leslie Newbegin says that the resurrection is the hinge upon which all universal history changes. Like, all the universe is heading, and then Jesus rises from the dead, and it shifts. This is what happens in the resurrection, and where does Jesus want to spend it? With crummy fishermen sitting in the Sea of Tiberias. This is who we follow. This is the Savior we follow. And that's why when you say, Jesus can't love me, can he forgive me? Can't... This is who he comes after. This is what he does. This is who we follow. Is the Savior that could be anywhere in the world. Once again, you got to remember, he's like teleporting into rooms with this resurrected body. Like they know it's him, but they don't know it's him. The body is the same, but it's not the same. There's things that are different. So Jesus can just like teleport and show up into rooms. You know, they're having a meal. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. So Jesus could be anywhere, and where does he choose to be with Peter? Where do I need to be more than any place else in the world right now? It's with Peter. So when you question, does God love me? Does God want to be with me? Does the king of the universe, who's resurrected from the dead and holds all authority over the planets, over everything, over fish, over my life, you remember this passage and say, that's what he does. That's the savior we serve. That's who he comes after. And this is reconciliation meal where we're reminded that this Savior eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he, not only does Jesus say, I want to spend my time with these people, if you read the passage carefully and we just walk our way through, he serves them. All authority, I just want to keep saying that. <laughs> All authority, Jesus says in Matthew 28, in heaven and on earth, belongs to me. I'm going to say it again. Just, I want you to just think about it with me. All authority in heaven 
and on earth belongs to me. And what am I going to do? I'm going to prepare a meal. I'm going to cook fish for these three fishermen. I'm going to serve them the meal. I'm going to break the bread and I'm going to get on my knees across the fire and serve them the bread. If you're not overwhelmed sometimes by the life and the example of Jesus, then I don't know what will overwhelm you. That he that holds all authority and power in the world comes and serves three. And think about this. They've been fishing all night. I mean, my goodness. And Jesus says, here, let me serve you this bread. Let me serve you this fish. And once again, we're going to be invited into this divine life to follow Jesus and walk with him. So this is the reconciliation that Peter needed. This is the coming back together, the restoring. Peter is restored with Jesus, but it doesn't end there. As we continue on in the text, Peter is recommissioned by Jesus. So continue along with me. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, Son of John, I think, is important because you have to remember that Jesus changed Peter's name or changed Simon's name, right? He calls him Peter, but I think it's important that Jesus comes back here and he comes back and says, I know who you are before you were anything, Peter. You know, when you were following me, you might have started, you, you might have to start to think that you're something, but I know who you really are. You're Simon, son of John. And who are you? And who's your dad? You know, and you might not like who your dad is. Maybe that brings something to you, but Jesus just brings you back and says, I know who you are, who you really are, Simon, son of John. And I'm here looking at the real Simon, son of John, and I'm saying, I want you. I don't want anything that you think you are, any importance that you think you carry. I want Simon, son of John. And then the, do you love me more than these? It's debated what that actually means, but I'll just say, I, th I think it's probably, do you love me more than the other disciples? But it's not really the main point, so we're not going to get in that. So, do you love me more than these? And he carries on and says, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, well, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And I said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now notice something that I think is interesting. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Oh, good. I love you too. No. <laughs> oh, Peter, I was worried. Okay. I love you too. Thanks, man. No, because the love of Jesus isn't in question, right? Think about it. I've already painted the picture of the authority, who Jesus is, resurrected from the dead. He comes back to Peter. Peter knows he's known his whole, ever since he's been with Jesus, he's never questioned once if Jesus loves him. So that's not in question. Jesus doesn't need to be restored to Peter in this moment. He already loves Peter. What he needs to do is he comes to Peter to restore Peter to him. So this is all about Peter. Jesus loves Peter, and Peter knows those Peter. But what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't say, okay, good, I love you too. Jesus says, well, if you love me, that love actually has action to it. That's what love is. When we say we love somebody, or when we say we love the Lord, he says, okay, 
will do what I've asked you to do. Because what is Peter doing now? He's gone back to what he did do. If you remember right when Jesus met Peter, right? It's the same actual situation with the fish, hauling it in. There's more fish. Peter falls in front of Jesus. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't worry about these fish, Peter, because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But Peter lost his way. He's carrying shame. He doesn't forgive himself. Jesus forgives him. Jesus gives him no shame, but Jesus needs to heal him from his past and recommission him in the work. And he's reminding him, Peter, if you follow me, then we're not catching fish anymore. That's not your job. I have work for you to do. I've already called you to this work, and I need to remind you of this work. And when I, when I come home, I have three things normally I do every single night. And I know by <laughs> my three things. I come home and I need to play with my kids and talk to my kids, be like fully physically present. I need to, in some way, teach my kids about Jesus. We'll sing songs. I mean, they're two, so you do what you can, right? It's, it's wild. But I mean, I'm singing songs. You're trying to do what you can. Teaching about Jesus, you know, it's like they're jumping on me. And then the third thing is help. My wife wants me to like help make him dinner, help give him a bath, help put him to bed. These three things, almost every single night. And I know tonight. Repeat, press repeat, right? Same thing. And a lot of you are in this situation or you've lived this situation. So if I decided because um, ministry is so important that I need to, you know, stop coming home around five, and what I need to do is stay out till about nine every single night, you know, because there's important things that need to be done. You know, there's important things that I need to do. There's meetings I need to go to. There's conferences I need to speak at. There's different people I need to meet with. Eventually, my wife might sit me down and have a conversation. Josh, son of David, do you love me? And I would say, yeah, baby, what are you talking about? You know I love you. Well, then help out with the kids. And I'd say, okay, Josh, son of David, do you love me? Babe, I mean, are you kidding me? Yes, of course, I love you. Well, then teach your, teach your kids about Jesus. Josh, son of David, do you love me? And I'd be like, are you kidding me? Of course I love you. I'd say, well, you need to do what you're commissioned to do, you know? And what's the other one that I said? You need to actually be present with your kids. You need to play with your kids. You need to talk with your kids, right? Why? Because I'm saying one thing, but she is seeing I don't really love her. And that's why Jesus is looking at Simon and saying, Simon, you're telling me that you love me, but you're fishing again. Remember, we talked about this when I first called you. <laughs> and I called you away from that, and I recommissioned you into something else. And if you're telling me that you love me, then we need to get back to what I've called you to do. And this is where each one of us, we have to ask ourselves that question. You look at yourself, and I say, Josh, son of David, do you love Jesus? And I say, yes, I do. And then he looks at me and said, okay, well, we'll do what I've asked you to do. Now, for most of us, we can look at the Bible and we can say, okay, well, there's very clear things I know, just as I talked about being a father. There's things that you're commissioned into based upon your circumstances of life. But there's also things that God is asking you to do. Maybe it's a call that God has put on your life and you're not being obedient to that call. Maybe it's just a simple act of obedience that God keeps pressing on you and you keep walking away from the Lord. Whatever it is, each one of us today, we have to look at Jesus 
And we have to think about Jesus looking at us across the fire and him saying, do you love me? And each one of us, if we're following Jesus, I would hope we'd say, yeah, of course, I love you. And then maybe something comes into our mind and the Holy Spirit says, well, do what I've asked you to do. <laughs> if you love me, love has action to it. Love has obedience to it. And you will follow me because you're commissioned by me and you're sent out. And then 18 through 19, that is commissioned to love, I would say, with Peter. And then 18 through 19 is we're also commissioned to suffer. It's a weird transition in this text. I'll tell you, the first time I, I love this text, one of my favorite texts. But it's a very strange text how there's like this beautiful moment of love and reconciliation and then death and suffering. That's kind of like, wow, Jesus just really transitioned. There's a beautiful moment with Peter, drawing Peter back in, restoring Peter, commissioning him again to love and feed his sheep and protect his land, the protection and provision of God's people. You see this so clearly, but it doesn't end there. And Jesus says, well, Here's what this is going to look like. Pick up with me. Let's go back to the text, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show him by what kind of death he might glorify God. You know, I work with a lot of international pastors and leaders in the valley, and they talk about coming to Arizona, and they have a hard time because when they come to Arizona, they say, you know, um, and this is part of my work that, that I'm doing in the city, and I've probably heard this from 25 different pastors. You know, I come down, I'm healthier, I'm safer, I'm more comfortable, I'm better protected, and I feel like my soul is dying here in America. And they come from war-torn countries. This is refugees. These are people that have been persecuted. And I feel like there's a shift that, that has to happen in their minds that no longer is suffering pressed upon them. And suffering normally for us isn't pressed upon us. Suffering is a choice. And you know how it comes? Through love. If you've ever loved anybody outside of yourself, you've suffered. It's a guarantee. I don't need to know you. If you're married and you've been married for 20 years, you've suffered. Why? Because you're dying to yourself every single day. It's not just one time. If you have kids, you suffered. When you choose to covenant with somebody and love them, and this is the gift of being in America that will lead us to suffering. When people say, man, we just don't even understand the international church. They're suffering out there. They're being persecuted. And I say, that's because we're not doing our job. If we were doing our job and laying down our lives for the vulnerable and the weak and the least, and for the people that God has put in our lives, we're not trying to suffer, but it is going to come. Right? Can I get an amen? Do you know? With me? Yeah. If you've ever loved anybody, you know that suffering is bound to come. And it's going to come to Peter. Because they would say Peter was crucified upside down. A lot of church historians would say that. So it's gonna, it came to Peter, and it's going to come to us. And whoo, I'm over time. Let me close this down. Um, and the last part is the invitation. The last part of the invitation is where after everything you've seen and heard, God says, follow me. And that's what he says to Peter. And this is the promise. That no matter what may come, no matter what suffering, no matter what pain, God is going to be with you. I keep referring to all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And God says, but don't worry, I'm going to be with you. Always. Always. Even to the end of the age. So pray with me. Take a moment.
and then Jim's going to come up and close us. God, we want to follow you and be like Jesus, God, and be commissioned into this divine life. So I pray in the name of Jesus that you would be with us and guide us, God, and help us because loving those around us is not easy. Following you is not easy. and We need the power of your spirit to do it. In the name of Jesus, amen.